Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, chronoskimming classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. We are so excited about Judgment Day here on this all-new XI4P premiere Friday. We're going to be taking a look at the final six issues of Kieran Gillen and Isad Ripich's Incredible Eternal series, as well as three free comic book day story entries. We're going to be taking a look at Of Deviation and Mutation, by Kieran Gillen, Dustin Weaver, and Marte Gracia. We're going to be taking a look at Let's Talk About Krakoa by Jerry Dugan, Matteo Loli, Rain Barreto, and VCs Clayton Cowles. And then we're going to be taking a look at The Amazing Spider-Man's Lost in the Mail by Zeb Wells, John Romita Jr., Scott Hanna, and Marcio Menez with letters by VCs Joe Carmagna. Now, these three stories were contained in Free Comic Book Day Avengers X-Men Eternals and Free Comic Book Day Spider-Man Venom, but Let's kick things off with that incredible coverage of the final six issues of what is, for me, the defining Eternal series, and it has been such a pleasure to cover it with this team, and we hope you guys love our coverage just as much as we enjoyed making it, and if you guys like what you hear, you might even like what you see, so don't forget to give us a subscribe over on Twitter and Instagram at X's for Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another exciting episode of X's for Podcast, your premier podcast for modern marvels, chronoskimming, classics, interviews, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me chronoskimming around the time stream at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. Hey everybody, it's Nick Did. You can find me online at Devsler. Wait, wait, wait. That's like Devsler in the age of apocalypse. Hey, it's TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. Hi everyone, it's Jake. You can find me on Twitter at Omega. Mega Sentinel, OH Mega Sentinel, or Oh Mega Sentinel. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H O W D Y D U D A. Hi, I'm Kevo, and you can find me over on the socials at Kevo Really. That's K E V O R E A L L Y. I am so excited to be here to talk about Eternals number seven through twelve by Kieran Gillen and Asad Ribich with a little smackerel of Free Comic Book Day vaguely thrown in. So, all right, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I thought number twelve was the best end. Marvel has produced to a maxi series since Squadron Supreme by Grunewald. I was so happy. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. It is certainly my favorite ending to an ongoing comic series from Marvel since Immortal Hulk number 50, which is the only other end to a series that I've read as many times as this issue in recent memory. Gotta agree, that last page was like, what? I mean, I know they've been kind of building towards it, but still, wow. I mean, the thing, of course, that I think we all want to compare it to is House of X and Powers of Ten, just in terms of sort of both the numbering and the intention behind what it was doing for the set of characters that it was working with. And this actually really is better functionally in a lot of ways. What it does for the Eternals and for the potential to sort of slingshot them into new and different stories, it really is a masterpiece. And no matter how much I love House of X and Powers of Ten, the ending of those stories really relied on us loving the X-Men 
done so much and being so excited about this new era. We don't have a lot to go on with Eternals. We know that we've got this event coming, but we don't know if they are becoming this team and world unto themselves that will one day be as big as the X-Men or the Avengers. And this ending especially really treated them like regardless of what happens, think of them that way. Think of them as having this incredibly important eternal struggle that is going to go on for a long time. The idea is now that they have been there for a long time. It's like every Marvel story you've been reading, the Eternals have kind of been in the background functioning and are an embedded part of the ecosystem of this world. This whole series has been about really explaining to us how that's going to work from now on. It does feel like a modernization of this particular arm of the Marvel Universe. The writing is so good that it doesn't feel forced. And, you know, Kevo, one of the things that I've most enjoyed about having you on this project is, you know, there's no comic I've ever dragged you into kicking and screaming. And, you know, even if there was ever a moment of hesitation, you've always found joy in finding what brings others joy. Yeah, okay, that's a good way to put it. And so I really wanted to experience and explore this story through the eyes of somebody who maybe doesn't play quite as often in the Marvel sandbox. How did you feel about the conclusivity of this sort of 16-issue body of work? Well, like you said, I don't really have a lot of experience with the Marvel comics as a whole, so I'm not sure how a lot of this stuff fits in with everything else in the universe. A lot of the areas of reality that the Eternals seem to exist in don't really intersect much with the main reality, even though a lot of the things that happen there have enormous effects on everything going on in the rest of the world. And I love that toward the end of the arc, we got that moment of coming back to Tony talking about the cover story they had been given about everything going on, because it makes you wonder how many events like that have gone on in the Marvel Universe that they think they are reacting to something completely natural or just something completely else. And there's so many secrets in the Marvel Universe, not just the Eternals. This is just the one that we are spotlighting right now. But there's so many intersecting lines that it's really fascinating to learn more about the ones that don't really get as much screen time, as it were. When the Marvel Cinematic Universe first started, I knew nothing of Marvel Comics. I didn't even know anything about Iron Man. So now that there is a more common cultural perception of what Marvel Comics is, it's really fascinating to see how that is still only just the surface. I love how much you brought up the Avengers here. I know that, you know, Nathan and Jake, you guys share a burned into your soul's love of Cersei. And when I think of a number of the Avengers that appeared in this run, but they're kind of like 90s-ish Avengers, and that automatically takes me to the crossing. So Steve, that's, you know, you're where my brain goes. And I really would love to know how you guys felt about these iterations of the Avengers being inserted into the Eternals story. For me, I have no problem with whatever short change the Avengers get because of the way the Eternals got frying panned in Avengers by Aaron. They get their moment to be bitchy about the Avengers and they really even weren't. Yeah, this does feel like a little bit of payback for being completely massacred in the pages of Avengers extremely recently, (laughs) especially since like the very end of this final issue ties back into that exact story. I find it hard to have too many sympathies for the Avengers here. I like completely understand where they're coming from. You know, they're people who want to save the world and that's their job and they've grown accustomed to thinking of themselves as that but they're so incredibly out of their depth here and I like that Cersei gets a little like frustrated with them when they say like this is our planet and she's like well okay but like when you're dead it'll still be my planet is the thing that you don't understand. (laughs) She's so delicious here. It's it's upsetting how good she is here. That's extremely good and although Namor is not often an Avenger although he is a long time one I am completely cool with him here in this issue 
to being like, I won. And everybody's like, what do you mean we didn't win? And he's like, I hot tub with Cersei for three days. <laughs> well, and Cersei for her part too is like, this counts as taking out one of the Avengers, right? Yeah, it definitely counts as taking on one of the Avengers. I mean, I think it also speaks to like what the book has to offer in terms of not every conflict has to be an all out brawl. On the flip side, not every conflict has to be this insane political mind game. This book has enough characters and enough antagonists to support this kind of jokey moment, but one that is actually functionally sort of important where Cersei and Namor just kind of sit the battle out together. But that's two big players that are no longer on the field that are reducing the amount that the audience has to worry about and sort of keeping plot at bay. It's both a really funny joke, but also just really goes to show that the Eternals are not just a fight team. It's not just Game of Thrones, but for space robots, it's got everything and you can really do whatever you want with it if you're a clever writer. I really love that point. It speaks to how a lot of this arc is a giant balancing act between the high drama of this eons old war and the very localized focused what is going on right now. And the problem you could run into with a series like this is the fact that with these characters being immortal, it is true. It is their planet. It is not the Avengers. And that really makes the Avengers seem small. And you don't want to do that. That's the biggest part of the Marvel universe really you don't want to make your biggest team seem like they could be nothing and so they also make sure to insert moments talking about how much the Eternals do value the human bonds they have come to form and keeping going back to that boy who was killed to bring Icarus back you know it's important that you balance between the immortality of it all and the intimacy and urgency of what's going on right now I think that's really pulled out by this arc that is about our Eternals having to learn how to change they can't really continue to be the Eternals that they were anymore and so have to recomport themselves and learn new skills and learn new ways of being. My favorite thing about the inclusion of the Avengers in the last three issues is I love Gillen's characterization of them. Like, even though they don't always get a lot of moments to talk, like, his Carol is fun and sarcastic and, like, zippy. His Tony's, like, spot on. And the idea of his name more Cersei just sitting out of battle in a hot tub. Mm, chef's kiss, perfection. When she sees Namor walking to the room, she's like, oh, I see the abs are on display. <laughs> I really like the battle, uh, as you all were saying, is a means for character development and mm-hmm. plot development at the same time, as well as not just being like an action-packed battle. Like, everybody gets character moments that are explicitly them. I mean, yep. Tony Stark is angry that somebody else stole his thunder. Ajak is furious at Thor because she has just become like go to the god butcher part two here just so yes. mad i had that in my notes too i was like do you want another god butcher this is how you get another god butcher this is how you make them this is how you make jason aaron's and it works so well <laughs> like even even going back to namor and cersei when he comes into this being like i'm distracting namor i'm keeping him from being a part of the battle and taking him off the board and namor's like i'm distracting cersei so that we can sleep later it reveals a lot about the characters namor is never somebody who is too concerned about how poorly his fellow avengers are doing I mean, he's only recently rejoined the team after a period as like an antagonist to them for like pretty much this entire Avengers run. And he's just like, yeah, that's whatever. If you think you're distracting me, that's cool. I'm actually pursuing my own interests and (laughs) the Avengers can handle themselves. I trust them too, unless shit goes badly. There's just so much going on in this battle between like Captain America being the reasonable one who's like, all right, just go, just go. (laughs) Probably my favorite part of the battle is when all the Avengers are just like furious and they're like, just go fix the thing. Apologize. (laughs) 
I love this Cersei. I mean, she's so deliciously like mean, but also kind of nice. She's powerful and she's confident and she's sexy. And none of those things make her crazy because she's not like a Wanda character who is like constantly going off balance with her powers or something. All of the men around her are just not sure what to do with her or not all of the non-eternal men like the the Tony Starks of the world. I, I love how self-possessed she is. It makes me very happy. She's so in command of herself and so mm-hmm. rational and pragmatic in this and it is a distinct change from the like kind of crazy unstable Cersei that we often saw. That is like a delightful change. It seems like the Cersei we've always been seeing has just been like another deception layered on another deception layered on a manipulation and yeah she's got sympathies for the Avengers. That's why she tells them like listen we may all look at you as like small children pets but like that's why you need to be on your guard. She's such a calculated voice of reason when so many people are behaving like they've had a few too many eternal Long Island iced teas <laughs> and there is just a certain level of yes well my dick is more eternal going <laughs> on here. <laughs> my dick is longer than yours. <laughs> yeah, It's an escalation of the hyper tropes that have always made up these characters for an escalated age and one of the things I think that the entire team works to do is create textures for these characters as though they're masks. The way that these characters' masks are moldable, and it's in a way that these hyper-exaggerated tropes play into the bigger picture. I love the way that their names set the stage for who they are, the way that if Icarus is the arrow, Jack of Knives is, you know, they're a knife, and like, it's betrayal, and it's sneaky. These characters really work for me on this grand scale that you just don't get to see in the Marvel Universe because every other day the Marvel Universe is trying to remind you it's the world outside your door and the Eternals are not outside your door. And once they are, you're fucked. I hope I never see an outside my door. This book filled me with a wonder for comics I just haven't had in so long. And we haven't even talked about my favorite part, which is the most satisfying defeat of Thanos in the history of comic books ever. But like, <laughs> I just can't stop gushing about the character work and the way it's such a, a rich tapestry from art to storytelling. And it's a pleasure to get to talk about. It. We have Maya there. We have Phoenix there. She could easily have just taken over the whole issue. But like, she's kind of like in the background like doing a lot of the heavy lifting Gillen's still letting everybody have their like legit good character moments from the Avengers and it really takes a skilled hand to be able to use those uber powerful characters like Phoenix and Starbrand and you know have them do the work you think they would but just just see it happen in the background Maya's not out there grandstanding she's not all like I'm gonna eat this broccoli planet she had no dialogue she had like no dialogue and her personality came across I know yeah in the art oh my goodness she gave a look and you were like oh Oh, she's over this. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. It, it's nice that she gets to be the incredible big gun of the Avengers, but she also doesn't have to be this dominating force that makes the battle like completely useless. Taking Starbrand off the table by having Sprite going <laughs> yes. is really funny because like uh, that's so obvious and yeah. it like <laughs> it works so well. I don't know why it does. It like honestly shouldn't work this well outside of like John Bogdanov's art, but it really does. It speaks back to what 
people have been saying about that battle being an opportunity for character development. Like Sprite knows what to do when it's a child who's up too late, you know? Sprite's got all of the illusions and all of the like people pleasing and child minding skills necessary to do the work to take an adventure off the board. I mean, I think it also speaks to the grandness of the Eternals. If this were an X-Men story with the Phoenix involved, I think it would play out very differently. But for the Eternals, this cosmic force actually isn't really that big of a deal. Ajax came from yelling at her god to then putting Echo in a cage because both things for her are kind of -of run-of-the-mill. And I think that is a really important reminder to the reader of like, if you stick with these characters and these stories, it's this type of stuff. You're not going to be getting, you know, the the inner workings of found family. That's okay. We've got stories for that. You're getting grandiose space opera, robot god stuff where the characters that you sometimes look at and go, I can't even conceive of how this character fits on the page, just gets kind of trapped in a bubble by one of the B-listers. <laughs> I am learning live on air for the first time that that was Maya, aka Echo. I had no idea that Maya is the Phoenix right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's got a great destiny. Her name isn't mentioned anywhere. They say the Phoenix, but mm-hmm. they never mention her by either the name Maya or Echo. I read her original run like 10, no, 15 years ago. Yeah, almost, because between 10 and 15 years. Before we years. got married, you had to read a bunch of Daredevil. And it, yeah. Was, yeah, it, was, it was exactly before we got married. So I know her from that. I know her as many do now from the MCU's Hawkeye and I'm very excited to see her get her own show soon. I'm fascinated by the fact that Echo is the Phoenix considering the upward trajectory she has on the MCU right now. Everything that is going on in the comics right now. Like that is why as much as I did love this Cersei, I find her so removed from MCU Cersei that I'm like... So what is the MCU doing? Like, what is their plan with mutants? What is your plan with Echo if she's the Phoenix right now? It really says something, though, to how engrossing these stories can be that, you know, I just didn't question it. I was just like, I that's not Jean Grey. And I know Jean Grey is the Phoenix. I know that's not Jean Grey. But it, it's not a big deal. I don't care. You know, it's not important to this story. They're telling me everything important I need to know about the Phoenix, which is that it's this cosmic entity that the Eternals, as you were saying you know don't really think much of and that's all i need to know for this story and it's executed very well in that regard it speaks to how the eternals understand the phoenix too they don't care about the maya part they care about the phoenix part they don't care about is it thor or is it odin who's got the all-father power they care about the all-father power it speaks to how they think of these heroes as archetypes in the same way that they think of themselves as archetypes Mm. in the conflict yeah this characterization of cersei which i think is more in step with the classic comics characterization is certainly different from the way they have her in the movie, which is much softer, much sweeter, much less sarcastic. I wonder what the thinking was in that choice of softening her characterization. That she needed to be likable because she was a leading lady. But why can't that be likable? I think there's I a lot of like strong them. female characters in cinema and television right now, you know, that Phoebe Waller-Bridge and everything that she does, I think, has a very similar energy to Cersei, and people love the hell out of her. I could see that being why. I disagree with the executives if that was why, but yeah. We're seeing a turning point in realizing that people will root for a number of different character types, and that 
that we have seen plenty of heroes and good people and soft people and kind people. And we can take a dive into not like the Deadpool, Logan-esque anti-hero that does murder and is possibly a bad person, but like a hero who has a shitty attitude. <laughs> uh, I, I think, Heroes you know, with shitty attitudes, please. Dr. Cecilia Reyes, up and down all day. We swan-dived into Wanda having a weird moment to, oh, she's a full-on villain and we're all cheering in the theater for her to kill everybody. So <laughs> I feel like maybe we hit some equilibrium with Cersei's kind of mean and parties. It could be a really good sequel for the original Eternals. I'm going to make this really easy for us. Cersei in the Eternals movie had been spending a lot of time with Dane Whitman, so let's just blame Dane. That's Fair. just, that's, that's just always, always the Dane. Dane. Everything is do. his fault anyway. That's perfect. Dane. So I've never been happier than watching Thanos lose and yeah. losing so spectacularly in the most delicious of ways. What a beautiful exploration of all of the things that make an Eternal an Eternal and a Deviant a Deviant. Thanos wasn't just felled in a convenient plot contrivance. Thanos was felled by the definition of the book, by the exploration of the themes of the title. He wasn't defeated by the machinations of the Eternals. He wasn't even really super duper like beaten by anyone. He was beaten by the definition of what this book sought to do. And that's something that this book also really needs to be praised for is such attention to its own details. We were explaining the ending of the arc to Jonah and he was like, what the hell do you mean? That's not the definition of excess deviation. And we were like, yes, it is. Think about all of this stuff. And they spent so much time, all of the data pages really laying out for us what was going on. It's why when they revealed, you know, the deviants are more important, I wasn't super shocked. But the way that it was all laid out and unfolded and revealed itself was so well done and so engaging. I really, 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 really love the art that conveys Thanos' fall here. And I have said so much about the sexiness of Isad Rabich's Thanos. It's unparalleled in every way. But the physical comedy of the moment of Thanos' defeat, <laughs> when, he's, when he's being enveloped in what looks like some kind of like soft rock fungus, like, I can't tell if this is Thanos going into excess deviation. That's how I read it. Yeah. Yeah. Caused by the failsafe, or he just got done doing a Doctor Doom moment where he's like, haha, I didn't really lose. I actually won because I changed in a way that you Eternals never could, even though that's not what I wanted. <laughs> and like, right after that, to lose as a result of his deviancy and to the the pure comedy of the expression on his face with his eyes going wide and his mouth disappearing as his hands are enveloped in those cute little mitts is insane. It's incredible. It undercuts him so well and he gets the ignominious end that Thanos deserves. As Kieran Gillen has pointed out several times throughout this comic. Visually, to me, it echoes back to that scene in the last arc we covered where Cersei starts converting him into mushrooms. And so yes. that's initially, I thought that's something like that was going on when I first saw the panel. It also looks exactly like that, and that's why I was confused. Yeah, it's a great sequence, though. Exactly like you said, Steve, he was kind of like, yes, well, what I wanted was the best ruined orgasm. So, (laughs) no big deal. This is exactly what I wanted. It's legendary, and it's going to go down in history. Like, there is something so satisfying about the fact that we, the reader, are not the only ones who don't know everything. Thanos didn't either. And like, this was so satisfying. Drug didn't even yes. know that he had won. It is so funny. It's really great that he has had his mind wiped since he made this plan and it just happens in front of him and he goes, oh yeah. 
Well done. <laughs> I love Good the idea job, that, that because that's such a part of Eternals culture, like he, the plan could work even if he wasn't fully in on the plan in the moment. And that for him, that makes Thanos a bumpkin. Like I love that he calls him my bumpkin cousin because Thanos isn't a part of Eternal culture, doesn't understand anything about it, didn't come from it. And it can't really participate in the machinations in the way that they can. He might be really strong and powerful and able to fight, which clearly Druig was not able to match him at. But in a long game, even Thanos being as smart as he is and having like made the big moves that he has in the Marvel Universe, he still can't take Druig in a long game on Eternal stuff. Exactly. When he is in front of you, he is a threat and you need to respect that because he will kill you. But when he's defeated, oh, he's not a problem right now. So he's just a little bitch. It's fine. We all have to kill Zaddy Thanos. I love the sheer contrast between the fact that Thanos had this huge master plan and it looked like he was on the verge of winning and then he was just taken out by the long play factor of Druig. I absolutely love that. And when he's standing over Thanos saying, ha well done me. He's just like, yeah, I saved the day. Well done me. Druig is so funny at the end of this comic. Kieran Gillen has such a way with words when he's like, Druig is a lick spittle, but remember that Venom is a highly specialized form of saliva it's like yes exactly but like drug constantly being like i'm gonna regret that later thanos agreeing the echoing of that and him just being like you can all applaud now i love it i haven't seen him be this fun in a while like he's been great in this comic but this is like top notch so we're standing at a really exciting precipice for the eternals with so many pieces in play and the definition of what an eternal is evolving sort of in tandem with the marvel universe's evolution this is something that doesn't really happen a lot. The Marvel Universe is very often distinctly doing separate things, and a lot of that has been tied up in the nature of rights ownership. But now that there is an opportunity to unite the lines in a way that feels perhaps organic, you know, I think the reveal that to the Eternals and the Deviants, mutants are kind of deviants, and this is going to be a thing. I find it a fascinating reinterpretation of the general myth of Marvel. And if we take a second, right, like, you know, if you're talking Tolkien, you're, you know, you're talking elves and dwarves and fun, and you know, but like Marvel's got like mutes. They're a fundamental part of the Marvel myth. And to so drastically affect them, again, within five years of so drastically affecting them in a way that feels organic is for me one of the most exciting things I've ever read to come out of Marvel Comics. And I'd love to get everybody's interpretation of mutants really could be the, you know, sort of like bastard princes of the deviants. And when I read that, I was like, wait, isn't this already been the case? And then I was like, oh, wait, no, I'm thinking of Earth X, like with the Celestials and the, you know, like the whole Earth X lore. So yeah, I was Earth like, X agenda is going true. Yeah, <laughs> it, I mean, they're, they've been pushing it for a while now. Love it. It makes sense because they've always been said to have the guiding hand in humanity. So it would make sense for mutants, mutant mutation to somehow have been caused or touched by the Celestials in that way. Yeah, I think Gillen really yes hands extremely well with Jason Aaron's the start of his Avengers run. Like he just takes that idea and runs with it to a logical conclusion to put everybody who reads X-Men or Eternals on edge. I mean, the deviant overview data page really does represent a myth of the existence of all of the strange life forms that we see on 616 Earth. It is an explanation that people, other writers will be able to use for years to come. I mean, this could be the reason why the super soldier serum works. Like, 
like somehow we were just saying that yeah this can be the mythological origin for anybody that you want and in that way i mean it's incredibly beautiful the fact that it also ties into just a you know broad idea of you know mutation uh evolution that you still can have the mutants being these human creatures that had something that was slightly different that over time they have are becoming the dominant species and that being a problem for the formerly dominant species that all still works it was the thing that i was most afraid of when this all judgment day started being talked about and mentioning the mutants as deviants started being talked about because that metaphor is really important and gillen of course i never should have been worried because gillen found a way to write it that it's mythological and beautiful but still applies to how we've always thought of mutants it just gives us even more interesting stuff to work with and i just love the idea of like the progenitor and the necrofluid all this stuff that gets talked about in this very high-minded you can only really conceive of the idea it can explain a lot and it can be there as a touchstone for many other writers to use on a variety of characters another thing it makes me think of which jake and i were talking about earlier is al ewing and this being the eighth iteration of the marvel universe yeah mm, yeah i'm really excited to see whether or not this story that they're exploring over in marauders is looped in this idea of like the first mutants the first generation of mutants are they deviants i want to know i want to know what happened to them oh, and if that's the story <gasps> I love that the ties in the mutants and the Eternals all together with like the greater galactic mythology as well. You know, like the Hubba Scrolls are deviants that became the dominant form on their planet. Mm-hmm. And how Thanos is just a big purple scroll. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. It, it ties all of this together so like nicely. It's the kind of nicely that I attribute normally to like Al Ewing's writing or Kurt Busiek or Roy Thomas. And it is it is nice. there have been so many projects that sort of loop back into earth x or lightly touch on it or maybe imply that this thing could connect to it and seeing marvel so wholly throw in on a specific iteration a specific alternate universe to sum it up this really does feel like that sort of grand design plan that they've been working towards since secret wars now i do have to ask a question and you know it's it's a nico question but it's kind of relevant marvel had hyped up that the big crossover this year was going to involve none other than my precious mickey miracle man and is there some possibility that miracle man is going to play an active role in judgment day or what follows because you know if it's gonna come due that the mutants fight the celestials that someone's gotta you know stand up to the celestials i can't think of too many people who can and if we're talking about god gods and tropes of gods and creating mythos you know mickey coming in and saying no no no, don't worry about this those were your gods i just killed them you have new gods now don't worry like that would be vaguely in line with his authoritarian stance that he takes throughout the later parts of the reimagining i really have to wonder how much marvel is looking to redefine the limits of their mythos and what pieces they're going to continue to bring in to do so i like that you cribbed magnet line of you have new gods now because that's kind of one of the open questions in the marvel universe is like what really constitutes godhood is it a power level thing is it a belief thing is it a we've been programmed by even greater beings to watch over this world and protect it as gods thing
thing. You know, it's clear that humanity and Earth has no need for the Celestials anymore. You know, they're not really doing anything for them. They don't feel like buddies to me. <laughs> no. It seems like now that their true purpose has been revealed and like they've just been trying to incubate super beings. And I'm really curious about the results of that experiment too. Like what what's going on with the super pus? Wait, you just made it sound <laughs> like the Celestials are just a really big, gross weapon plus facility. And I am <laughs> I mean, they, so careful. That's what I want to Because oh. like, wouldn't, wouldn't a character like Miracle Man be the logical thing that they want out of something like that? He was like weapon that? plus. So yes. I mean, genuinely, they keep drawing attention to the fact that the Eternals have no contact from the Celestials. They're not saying the Celestials are dead or anything. They're implying they're still out there. They just aren't talking to the Eternals anymore. So who are they talking to now? Because you can't assume they're done doing what they do. Dicks be dicks. <laughs> and of course, the last real glimpse that we got of Miracle Man becoming part of the Marvel Universe was in the Kang one shot. It feels like there's going to be a sort of time and space multi-dimensional aspect to however Miracle Man shows up. I don't know. I would be surprised if Miracle Man were to show up in Judgment Day as sort of a deus ex machina or to be like the, the next level of God that needs to be addressed. But it wouldn't surprise me if in the epilogue to the story, whatever conclusion we get with what, what Earth is going to do about this celestial influence, we get this hint that now Miracle Man will also play a big factor and maybe a clearer direction. I love how it all plays with the different levels of the gods or celestial beings in the Marvel Universe. I love I, I love the idea, like, trying to figure out, like, where, like, a celestial would fall versus where Phoenix would fall in, like, that whole organization chart. It's just so fascinating. I'd love to get everybody's final thoughts on Eternals as we make our way toward the event Judgment Day. This has been a great series, and I'm not necessarily prepared to let it go, but if this had to be the end of it, then it's a really good end. Issue 12 was a masterpiece. I really enjoyed the entire Hail Thanos arc. It gave me a lot of new characters and great designs and design changes and epic emotions, high operatic stuff, and I'd love to see another Eternals run by either Gillen or Rubich or this entire team back again would be amazing, but I'm going to be picking up Eternals whenever it does come back. I'm hopeful that they are in a good place by the end of the Judgment Day crossover, but, you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of pain before they get there. This has been such a beautiful reintroduction to these characters, a reinsertion of them into the, the goings-on of the greater Marvel universe. I'm so grateful for this book. It's really balanced the high drama with some really pointedly funny moments that kind of crack the humor in. I love the way this is setting up the Eternals in a way that makes sense and is organic and is logical to have, obviously, to reinforce their really long ties with the Marvel universe, but to also try to bridge the Eternals forward is, is something that maybe can be a little bit more accessible to everybody. I care about the Eternals now and I want to see them like come out of the war second place and maybe Avengers be last place. <laughs> I remember when Judgment Day started to be announced and we were getting hints about what it would be about. A lot of the fandom was really concerned and worried that the X-Men were going to be getting short shrift in this and were going to be seen as, you know, deviants or evil or in some way as in need of putting down after this great era. And I get where a lot of that wariness comes from, you know, having been an X-Fan over the last decade and a half. But this story did such an amazing job at putting to ease any concerns that I had about mischaracterization of the X-Men 
or, you know, some other attempt to replace them or make them less relevant. But what really amazed me is that it was able to do that in a way that still makes the eternal seem incredibly important. This question of excess deviation is so clearly not an objective target. It's so obviously something that can be interpreted a number of different ways. And we see how complex eternal culture is now. We see how Druig is not somebody that can be trusted outright. So this idea that the Eternals are going to be going after excess deviation in the form of mutation no longer feels to me as like an attempt to rein in the X-Men by, you know, editorial fiat. It appears to me to be the clashing of these two really now well-developed cultures that I'm interested in seeing. And my hope is that what we get out of this is a great story for all sides, but not one in which anybody is forced to say like, well, the X-Men were right and the Eternals were wrong. And so now I want to see more X books and no Eternals books and the Eternals are all bad guys. I really want to see the complex story that's being set up here play out in a way where there's no winners or losers. We just sort of explore this question and take things to the next level. And I truly believe after what Gillen has shown us in these 12 issues, plus these amazing one shots, that we're going to be getting something like that. I really, really love all of that. And I most especially love you pointing to the ambiguity of the phrase excess deviation. You know, so much of this arc has been with all those lovely data pages filling in the history of the Eternals and how many times there has been a conflict over what exactly is the definition of excess deviation. And with this revelation that the deviants are the ones who are the more important part of the experiment. So it it is the question of are the mutants the next stage of evolution? So do they pose a threat to the current stage of life or do they need to be protected and encouraged and help to evolve humanity into its next stage and I think we're going to see a lot of questions about that and I really don't see how you can come through the other side of this without having some really interesting and fun ramifications for the Marvel Universe at large and I'm excited to see how it translates on page and on screen and just overall throughout the Marvel Universe as it continues to grow. It's just nice seeing the Eternals treated as their own thing and not a footnote, not like, oh, and Jack Kirby did this and sometimes Marvel trots them out. Like, like, no, it's a show pony. It gets to stay on stage. And like, I think Eternals deserves to stay on stage. And I really hope this is a cement point for them, though I have this sort of like gut feeling if they really want this to stick, they're going to have to slap an X-Men on the cover somehow, like Road to X-Men Avengers Eternals Judgment Day is going to go on the omnibus cover or something. Just something so that they can help boost sales a little bit. I know that they have not really been at the level of the X-Men and Avengers counterparts, and even then Avengers has seen some better days. But I am certainly excited for the follow-through that takes the Eternals to their rightful place in the Marvel Universe. You know, respected. All right, so Nico here again, and I am so excited to talk about these three free comic book day stories. I happened to be with some members of the team when these came out, so it was like an exciting experience to talk about it. And, you know, we talk a little bit about our different free comic book day experiences in this next couple of segments. And that's right, it's a couple of segments because we decided to cover this free comic book day a little bit differently. So we have coverage from Jake and TK, Jonah, our crew of the Midnight Mission, Steve, Nathan, Wancho, and Raven 
Kevin. And then we're going to finish things out with Josh before we turn things over to the final part of our Asgardian Wars chrono skimming coverage. But I got to say, these three stories were really exciting for me as a reader, as somebody who's always looking for these events to have some sort of concrete connection. It was a huge thing to get my husband, Kevo, to read Eternals for me. If for no other reason, while he does love comics, when they are very prose heavy, it can be hard for him. He comes to his comics in many ways for the images. Now, when it's a writer like Kieran Gillen, he really knows how to celebrate the artist in the work as well. So like that definitely isn't a problem here where, you know, the art just gets totally covered. But we're walking around Target and we're talking and somehow excess deviation comes up and he's engaging me on it. And like he's really talking to me about how he feels like, yeah, you know, Krakoa would be excess deviation. And we're having this amazing conversation. And that's something that like I would never trade for the world. And it's so cool that I got to have that moment because this exciting story is just so riveting. And as somebody who grew up on Earth X, as someone who spent so many years in love with the, you know, graffiti designs hardcover and the original sort of omnibus pressing before they were all omnibus editions and getting the trade of the sketchbook. And, you know, as somebody who that was such a humongous part of my Marvel mythos and culturation, it's been so exciting to see it come due in the pages of the the Marvel Universe with things like Is Mutation, Excess Deviation. It's a fascinating way to approach an existing idea and try and find the ways in which these things share boundaries and the times where the boundaries kind of fall away. Namor as the first mutant, maybe the first time I heard it just didn't sit right with me, but the more I've thought about it, the happier it's made me. Ultimately, I feel like the reveal that to the Eternals at the moment, mutants represent the ultimate responsibility the ultimate thing that they must take care of is a really exciting storytelling beat for me. One that I really hope to see followed up on throughout the pages of Judgment Day. Now I'm going to keep pushing my Miracle Man agenda in Judgment Day, but that's, you know, just me and my weird fandom. Admittedly, my fandom was pushed maybe a little bit further on Let's Talk About Krakoa. I have been very vocal about my concerns about evil Moira McTaggart. She's just not my jam. I love Moira so like supervillain Moira has been very hard for me at times. I'm with a number of our contributors on that, but I am excited to see how motherfucker Mary Jane Watson, who's not going to go down. I don't care what robot you put against her. Mary Jane Watson is not going down. She is a goddamn superhero. You know, something we talk about in different aspects of this show is the romantic partners of superheroes who are the unsung other heroes of the Marvel universe. There is, you know, not a realistic way that Mary Jane Watson is going to be able to put up a physical struggle against super robot Moira McTaggart but I believe in my heart of hearts that Mary Jane Watson is such a fighter she's such a strong independent incredible woman and you know we're covering her over in the MC2 stuff that I'm just so excited to be talking about her there and talking about her here and really I want to see Mary Jane pull through this and I want to see her take on Moira because Moira's not the only woman from the X-Men's past who is popping back up in a big way very very recently. In the pages of Spider-Man Venom, we have the return of Madeline Pryor as sort of a villain and I'm I'm kind of thrown because I think in New Mutants we're meant to root for her redemption, so I have to wonder if in some regard maybe the New Mutants arc was supposed to be complete by the time this free comic book day story came out and we're seeing some heavy delays and, you know, when the work is as good as the work that Vita Ayala and Rod Race produce, let it take its sweet damn time.
time. But I'm challenged by this. I don't know what to make of Ben Riley. Here I am in the same camp as a lot of our crew where Ben Riley is a thing about the 90s that I love based on visual iconography more than perhaps an actual attachment to the character emotionally. Of course, a lot of my feels about Ben Riley continue to come out in our MC2 coverage. Wow, it really does feel like it is 1998 in so many new ways. But I am excited to see the ways in which the street level of the Marvel Universe is going to be further incorporated into the X-Men, whether it's Elektra and Emma Frost sharing a past with the Kingpin, or it's Ben Urich trying to investigate Cyclops' deaths. Now we have Spider-Man connecting to the X-Men in multiple ways. This really feels like an opportunity to see X-Men in its... some You know, because what I don't have this possible, but somehow X-Men is under-celebrated and is often underserved, which feels like it shouldn't be possible with how much attention the mutants get but it really is true you know they're very much celebrated in their kingdom but this feels like it's an opportunity for the x-men to be celebrated everywhere i could not be more excited than to share this opportunity with so many of the cast to talk about the way they felt about these stories as well and i hope you guys enjoy Hey everybody, I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. Hi everyone, I'm Jake, and you can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel, O-H Mega Sentinel. And we are talking about free comic book day today. This was a weird one for us, because Jake and I are usually together for free comic book day, and we pick everything up together, and we pour through it together, and this time we were not only apart, but Jake, you were not able to actually go to comic shop for free comic book day. For the first time in my life i was unable to access free comic books on free comic book day very (laughs) sad yeah it was it was it was a true tragedy i had to beg people not to spoil things for me even though i guess secretly i had technically already been spoiled it was really rough for me because i could not talk to you about no that must have been really rough for you i got home and i discovered that mary jane watson and her aunt are pharma shills now and i you know couldn't say a word to you wasn't fair yeah what what happened there (laughs) she sold her soul out to the mutant devil you know on the one hand i'm like it's kind of like how people are like okay but legion of x they're just cops i hate cops and like i get it but so it's like mary jane's just a pharma shell now which i hate obviously that's the worst but also she's a pharma shell for krakoan homegrown pharmaceuticals that are all awesome like I, i just love when they set things up like that well and you know she's a human in the marvel universe so she is capable of giving that like on the ground human perspective and so the idea that the Krakoan drugs are effective and are benefiting a segment of the population is something that they want to show us. Yeah and I love the idea that Mary Jane would be somebody who would want to support the mutants and be like no actually this was a really great thing that benefited me and my family like I love these people. Also her ex-husband is basically a mute. I mean basically that's always been the thing with Spider-Man is like he's always been one foot in one foot out like 
the point where he was even teaching at the Xavier School. He's not really technically a mutant. He's certainly lumped in, and he certainly has gotten the feared and hated treatment. Meaning, like, J. Jonah Jameson and the Raiders of the Daily Bugle. That yellow journalism. It's an interesting zone to be in, and so it's interesting to put Mary Jane, who is a steadfast human married to a human with superpowers that is not a mutant, as a, an ambassador for a mutant kind. I love Mary Jane. You know, we love a feisty redheads. Now I'm a little bit worried for Mary Jane. I gotta say, it's been a real hallmark of these last few months that every once in a while I'll go, oh, okay, guess that's the end of the Moira storyline, and suddenly I'm shocked <laughs> to discover that the whole thing is continuing and going, ramping up to 25. The end of Inferno into X Lives Next Deaths, and here it is once again. And now we've got her looking like a crash test dummy for some reason. Holy shit, I mean, crazy eyes, robot lady. This was a really great reveal to me. There's a lot of stuff happening that I'm like, I don't want it. I didn't ask for it, but I really am enjoying what somebody else wanted to do and is giving to me. It was a really tough image to see, primarily because as soon as I see Moira behind Mary Jane, the first thing I think about is Banshee at the end of X Deaths. Oh yeah, the threat of the skinning. And yeah, she says, like, I'm going to be wearing you. Wearing? <laughs> the idea that Moira could go as far as to gut Mary Jane and literally wear her is now completely plausible and what that would do to spider-man and relationships between spider-man the x-men machines human like everything would be thrown into chaos though i do think it'll probably be like a little control bolt i do too i don't think they're interested in killing her off for the sake of spider-man's growth yeah she's not a fridge girl my only thing is i keep waiting for the moment where somebody huge like mary jane dies and charles has to be like i've been backing everybody up like i saved all of your loved ones so that i could maybe use as leverage against you? That would track, but can Cerebro emulate the human animus or whatever it is? Yeah, I'm sure this is not what's happening, but I, it is one thing that I always think about when I see a human tied to the mutants that is in peril. Mary Jane, so far as we know, is a baseline human. It's a funny flip on the idea that like, if she were killed and resurrected, she'd be the first human resurrected through Koa, where once Moira, who ostensibly would be the person who killed her, was the first human with the legacy virus. I don't know. I just see like a, a thematic rhyme there that I like. Could be cool. We're worried about Mary Jane, I think, and rightly so. The whole story is just kind of light and whatever. And of course, Mary Jane Farmershill, like whatever. That's a that's a funny little beat. She comes home and it gets a little tense. And then all of a sudden you are smack dab in the middle of a horror story cutting over to Spider-Man and Venom free comic book day book, which right off the bat is feeling like you're in the middle of a horror story, but it's very funny and kind of fun. It's really funny. I did not pick this book up for free comic book day i'm just not a spider-man person i didn't really figure there was going to be anything in there for me in particular i do love zeb wells i was very happy to hear for his career that he was going on to write spider-man i just didn't think that i was going to pick it up plenty of writers that i love write parts of the marvel universe that i don't really spend a lot of time in and so i really had no interest in it and it was when the books came out in digital that you grabbed it for our shared archive Mm -hmm. and told me that i absolutely had to read it 
which I thought was really weird for you to say. Yeah, I'm not a huge Spider-Man person. I liked Spider-Man as a kid, but Zeb Wells, the the series of his that I've read were enough to make me want to hop on with an amazing Spider-Man number one. Honestly, it's really paying off. It's interesting seeing what characters a person will bring from series to series because they want to continue telling their story. And this free comic book day Spider-Man Venom issue had a character that is clearly a pull from Zeb Wells' Hellion series. Yeah, so, I mean, as you mentioned, we see some very familiar stuff. It's Spider-Man stuff. I wasn't thinking. The whole time, I'm just thinking it's symbiote stuff. Like, seeing a mailbox come to life, I was like, okay, I guess maybe symbiotes can possess inanimate objects now? Really not clear what I would take away from this. You know, long story short, big reveal, Maddie Pryor in the Spider-Verse. Yeah, Madeline Pryor, who we last saw in Hellions, who had just been resurrected. I guess, no, we last saw her in New Mutants 25 now. Feels like there's some unfinished business. To She's also in a new costume, which love that the general theme and recognizability is still there. Yeah, you immediately know this is Madeline Pryor. Yeah, yeah, there's no question about it. Two really jaw-dropping reveals in these, and the interplay of Spider-Man's world and the X-Men's world, I love it. We've had moments like the Spider-Man and the X-Men, moments where Peter teaches at the school the the mutants and peter buddies this all makes total sense but the idea that the guy who was just writing hellions moves all the way over into the spider-man world and is like wait a second i got a little a little tie back that i want to do and it's madeline Pryor. i absolutely love that it makes me so happy i really live for moments like that i love that she just looms oh she, she just looks so powerful my one thing with madeline Pryor is that you know she doesn't need to be burdened by the past anymore and so she's got nothing but the future ahead of her at this point in her life so i hope that she finds a good path for herself and i hope that this is all in the service of a greater good i guess i definitely trust zeb wells to have an idea of the character that is not just evil crazy lady and that whatever we're seeing even if it's bad might be you know a byproduct of trauma that needs resolution but i think we're gonna get something much more complicated than we see on the surface here which i kind of think is the opposite of the case of the moira mary jane situation i think that's just gonna be scary and horrible and then we're on to the next beat until the hellfire gala i'm tk and i'm jake we'll see you soon Hey everybody, it's Jonah. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. And oh boy, I hope you survive this comic book day experience. Just like hopefully MJ will. Listeners out there who are fans of the Heathers musical, the only thing I have in my brain right now is the beginning of the song, Fight For Me. It starts with the whole chorus saying, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. The stunts, shenanigans, tricks, and just reveals that we got from these two issues. I want to start with the Judgment Day issue. The beginning part of it, talking about the history of excessive deviation in terms of how the Eternals deal with that and how they basically are essentially forced to destroy any sort of quote-unquote excessive deviation was a really fascinating history in looking into what what I assume is going to be an upcoming conflict from the Eternals between them and the X-Men. I am truly excited to see how that conflict will shake out, but what was even more surprising and 
and the most shocking was the ending of the issue in which after MJ tucks in her aunt, Moira, in a much more fembot robotic design, creepily talks about how she's going to wear MJ to the Hellfire Gala. First off, she looks uncanny and horrifying, and I love it. Everything about it brings me like unbridled like horror and terror and glee and excitement for what exactly not only does Moira have planned but like this is horrifying this is grotesque and it's so cool that we're kind of left off in this really great area where we don't know exactly what's happening I need to know what's going to go down because this Hellfire Gala I think is going to top the last one in terms of reveals and I, I can't imagine this is going to turn out well for everybody involved this reminds me of my life as a teenage robot XJ9 there was an episode where she gets her mom who's an inventor to give her basically a human skin that she can wear around that later gains sentience and tries to force Jenny XJ9 to wear her around that's the only thing that's like in my head talking about this that like makes me feel nostalgic in a way even though this is brand new I just seriously can't wait for what's going to happen because I would have never expected Moira to take this turn in terms of who she chose and what she's doing I understand Moira's kind of just basically doing whatever the fuck she wants to do and I have no idea where this character is going but at this point I'm just going to sit back and see where it goes because I don't think there's anything else you can do about that and then I read the Spider-Man Venom issue which holy shit and holy moly the ending of the first story where after Peter saves the day from this demonic mailbox which I think is really cool and he runs away saying yeah I think I hear a crime over there uh bye and basically just leaves so the cops won't bother him we see that the culprits are maddie and ben and my brain exploded because i don't know how this happened i need to know the backstory of how did they meet why are they working together what what are their mutual goals that they're going for it's such a fascinating pairing that i never would have expected and i don't even know what's going on is ben enthralled is maddie up to something you know nefarious the last i saw ben he was over in the death of dr strange issue where he and felicia were just kind of going about trying to make sure to do the daily tasks of steven and now he's hanging out with madeline Pryor, and i just i my brain can't comprehend this is exciting is alex gonna get jealous over this like what is going on between these two i don't think anybody could have predicted this pairing and this team up i am so excited to see what's going to happen i thought these were two pretty great issues i just can't wait to see what is going to be the resolution to all of this because I hope it's all wonderful, delicious, juicy, drama-filled, bad and good things. I hope everybody else is just as excited as I am. Hello and welcome back to X's for Podcast. So we're here today to talk about Free Comic Book Day, X-Men, Eternals, and Avengers, Judgment Day, and also the Amazing Spider-Man Free Comic Day comic. My name is Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. Hi, this is Juancho, and you can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krakoa. And that would make me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread. Come over and find me on Twitter and Instagram. And I guess that makes me Nathan, and you can find me online at Desiree at Twitter. 
Twitter and hope you survived the experience, unlike my hopes of a Moira revamp ever. Well, I mean, I guess you could reboot her. <laughs> we could reboot her. First off, we'll be starting with the Amazing Spider-Man story, Lost in the Mail. We're going to be looking at the last page of that. What did everybody think of this last page reveal in the Free Comic Book Day Amazing Spider-Man? An issue that I thought was extremely fun, and the reveal only made me happier. I thought the reveal was definitely fun. It kept everything kind of in line of fun. And oh my goodness, the Goblin Queen has her under boobage covered. I was so happy. Yeah, I was excited to see a new outfit for Maddie, although it was not extremely different from her other ones, but it was nice to see her rocking some gold and something a little bit fresh. And a crown. Yeah. Really cool. I really love the pattern of Ben and Maddie. Exactly. If you're going to be the Goblin Queen, you might as well have a crown to go with it. Like I love the gold accenting. That was so lovely. And yeah, while the change is small, I'm happy to see it. And I'm hoping that they'll give her more outfits, please. I love the idea that Maddie Pryor and Ben Riley are going to be the new clone power couple. Take over the Marvel Universe and just like go like clone right. Yeah, it's really nice to have that uh, double throwaway clone thing. Like they've both been like literally thrown away by the people in their lives as like, oh, you're not real. You're not a real person. You're just a, a clone of me. So can anybody bring me up to speed on Ben? So Ben Riley, the Beyond Corporation is messing with his memory, is messing with his mind. So he slowly, as he regains his own personhood, he kind of sets on a path of villain. Okay, and so that explains his new cool outfit he's wearing? Yeah. Yeah going by chasm now and is maybe not fully a hero at this point i'm not completely up on that we're probably getting two of the best writers in don of x teaming up probably with sav and Bira Ayala in new mutant i love this and i love the maddie return to prominence i love that Zubwell's really just loved maddie so much just had to keep her and bring her to spider-man it's interesting that between these two issues, we do have the Krakoa and Spider-Man merges, and between these two events, Judgment Day and the Dark Web stuff coming up, it does seem like the X-Men are being slowly reintegrated back into the rest of the Marvel Universe after spending a lot of time on their own. And it's interesting to see the clashes and alliances that they'll have coming up with all these other heroes. I mean, it kind of speaks to a lot of social concepts that are going on right now, so I mean, I could see why they're doing that, but I also sort of wanted just a little little bit more time to have a more fully realized away from society kind of Krakoa. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I often prefer the X-Men to kind of do their own thing, if only because then they're not hamstrung by dealing with, you know, superheroes or whatever crossover of the week. But crossovers have continued to happen through Krakoa, and now I guess we're really kind of getting back into it with uh, all the other major powers. I think this time's going to be maybe different because of, like, this tight integration between writers and, like, rest of the creatives. Because we have Seb with the new uh, Hellions now doing Spider-Man. And so he's bringing both of these plots together with Vita. And we have Kieran Gillen doing both Immortal X-Men and Eternals and X. So, like, it's probably just a crossover in name, mostly. And I think that's going to help both events, whenever Dark Webs com- comes out, to be more integrated. Like, the stories to be more fleshed out. It feels like we were mostly positive on seeing Maddie and Ben together at the end of the Spider-Man issue. So I guess yeah. it's time for us to turn to 
the Free Comic Book Day X-Men story, let's talk about Krakoa. I would love to hear all of your opinions on this particular last page. Moira, what the fuck? Like, I want to be on your side somehow still, but like, Why? you are going... I, Why ah. would you ever want to be on her side? She's a genocidal, self-hating no, fuckwit. I want her to become the character that I used to love. The one who was like the Din Mother to Excalibur. After Inferno, it would have been tough, but after the descent that she's taken from Ekdath into I'm going to cut your skin off. Yeah. Villain? Yeah. Straight up. I mean, she's been a villain for a while, but she's now definitely in that okay, you're in Cassandra Nova territory. I don't see a good way to actually redeem you. See, she's also in like goofy second-hand Cameron Hodge territory, which is yep, that's, Yeah, that's what I was about to say, that she's just become a Cameron Hodge 2.0. I don't think Moira's descent into madness is justified at all in any way. I mean, it's just like they told us, you know what? Maybe people aren't actually getting that Moira's against the mutants, or let's just make her a complete evil fuck, and it's whatever. And there's no nuance to her character anymore. She's just yeah. Cameron Hodge again, and to me, that's really not interesting at all. Moira is just a whatever character now, and I don't know what. I mean, unless Gillen has some insane ideas with what happened in Moral Number One, I don't know if Moira is ever gonna recover as a character. It's hard to imagine her walking back from where we've been left at the end of X Deaths and with this comic. I felt like the Moira at the end of Inferno was heartbreakingly turfy and like a real villain, but a nuanced villain with complexities that I could like buy and understand. But the full-scale descent into like cackling evil for the sake of evil by the end of X Deaths was really hard for me to buy. And this issue just really doubles down on that in a way that I can't enjoy. Like I also can't enjoy menacing Mary Jane. Mary Jane Watson is one of my favorite characters in the Spider-Man universe and she looks so good here. I'm a really big fan of this amazing outfit that she has on. It's very fashionable. And I think Mateo Lolly makes her look gorgeous. And then they give us this nice little at home with her aunt and then follow it up with, oh yeah, I'm going to wear your skin. Like I'm desperately hoping that this is some kind of metaphor where she's just going to be infected with phalanx and be recoverable. And it's not literally going to be exactly what she just did to Banshee, her former lover. But how can I be certain that this great character is safe from narrative abuse at the hands of Moira and whoever happens to write her next. It sucks. It doesn't make me feel good. It's very upsetting. And I just feel like as much as Moira's villain turn is believable for me, at least at first, it has slid too fast and too far to the point where I'm just like, I have to throw my hands up in frustration at this character. Oh, see, no, this is a baseball slide into like third base for me because this is just catch up. She has always been a genocidal fuckwit. She has used each and every one of her lives to, at some point or another, try and destroy mutants because she. I don't believe that actually. Oh, I I do. There's been so much fucking evidence, and it's it's like you know, okay, you're you're a mustache twirling villain, and I honestly expect to see that at some point. So like for them to like really just slide it home that oh no, she's a fucking villain. She's a she is as much of a like crazy out of her mind 
mind because she's had way too many lifetimes. She's a friggin' villain. Like, this is just cake on the plate. I mean, I can see your perspective, Raven. It's going to be hard for me to enjoy reading Moira like this. I can say so much for the appeal of a mustache-twirling villain who is just full villainy. I love that about Sinister. I love that about a lot of X-Men villains in particular. Apocalypse, when he's really down and dirty. But like, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's whiplash for me. And it has been such a fast turn without any of the complexity I'd been hoping for. But I, I do agree that Moira is this character now. So it remains to be seen, like, the character that I was more interested in seems to be gone. And I don't know if they're coming back. Okay, yeah, that's valid. This character, I'm gonna have to work really hard to enjoy reading, especially since Percy got done with her. This doesn't make me excited necessarily for this phase of this event. I'm very excited about this event, but this free comic book day, if anything, like if I had just come across this as like an X-Men fan who hadn't been reading for a while, I don't know if I would have wanted to pick up more. When Jordan D. White was on, uh, I think, X-Men Monday, two or three weeks ago, he mentioned that this turn for Moira was not in the original plans, which we know they all changed early, but that this was very recent, like a recent change for her. And maybe that's why it's felt so jarring for us readers to see her from this very nuanced, tragic character into Cameron Hodge again. And that's why I'm 100% with Steve. I don't enjoy reading Moira anymore. And I'm, I'm okay with her being a villain. That's fine by me. She's just being Daenerys, right? That is a really good way to put it. Like, I mean, Moira makes so much sense to me as a villain. I, again, really loved her turn in Inferno. But, like, this is just a different villain to me now. Yeah, and this happened in, like, two weeks, X-Men time. Maybe it doesn't help that it was a weekly event rather than a monthly event. Because everything happened very fast, and I've had to adjust quite a lot of what I thought Moira was capable of. She turns from a deeply, tragically flawed woman who thinks she's doing the best thing for humankind and the, and the people, right? So it turns her from that in two weeks to... To a woman who sets up her own joke they ask me who i'll be wearing <laughs> poor mary jane's like who are you wearing how did she descend from this smart intelligent woman to like this like psychotic like joke telling riddler anybody actually think mary jane would say who who are you wearing like come on no, <laughs> yeah. no. she would have tased her ass so quick she was being courted by Tony Stark for a while. She's got some kind of technology in her house that turns off, like, a suit of armor. Siri, shut this bitch down. <laughs> so, we've aired it out. We've talked about both. Which of these issues has you most excited for future comics? Spider-Man, definitely. Because it's two underserved characters that they're going to be written by a guy that's really good at writing underserved characters. And for me, I really want to see, like, the Eternals, X-Men, Avengers. Because, I mean, that was pretty freaking brutal as setups go and I really want to see what's going to happen long term in that part of the universe because I do have questions about how those interactions would go. The event overall, I, I want the X-Men Avengers Eternal event. Do I need a follow from this? Only because I need Mary Jane to somehow get out of this because I do not need another Mephisto saga coming in to bring Mary Jane back. I'm not sure if the Mary Jane plot is actually a part of Axe. Yeah, so I... That's why I'm, like, obviously I'm super mega excited for Axe because it's Kieran Gillen right Eternals and X-Men, so, but I'm not exactly sure if the Moira plot is going to be part of the event. Yeah, it may end up being more of a part of Dark Web in the end. This is going to turn Spidey against the X-Men. Because the mutants are always getting blown when anything goes down. Okay, but does Peter Parker really deserve more pity? I love the character. Do not get me wrong, but he's the embodiment of a pity party. I have been more excited for Axe, as we're now all calling it, because that's what it looks like, and it's going to go down forever as that, given big sixes vibes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like... 
I've, I've been excited for that. I'm an X-Men reader, I'm an Eternals reader, and I am, at least on Marvel Unlimited, an Avengers reader. And so I'm going to pick that up, of course. But if I was just judging on the last two pages of these comics, the comic I'm going to pick up at the comic book store in Floppy would be Zeb Wells and John Romita Jr.'s new Spider-Man series. I'm probably going to pick up number one at the very least because this was like really fun to read. It was a flashback to Inferno. It was drawn gorgeously and with a great dynamism and fun in the art and the writing really sang. If I didn't have plans for this big event already coming up, the first thing I would think after reading this is I'm going to go and buy an issue of Spider-Man. This is Josh Wheel. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and asleepatthewheel.com. And from now until November 8th, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. Today, talking about the Axe. Avengers, X-Men, Eternals, Judgment Day, Free Comic Book Day book. And I am beginning to feel that Axe is going to be about as pleasant as the body spray from which its name derives. I have been one of the more, say, naive buyers inners of this. And for one reason, one reason only, Kieran Gillen. I am a huge fan of Kieran Gillen's work. I believe that he is one of the two top world builders in comic. Other people create worlds that have things that are different. Gillen and Hickman create worlds with rules. They deep build at a fundamental level the physics, the laws of the world that guide and what make it different at every level. And I think that the depth and the attention that they put into their work, the next best isn't close. The main antagonists and protagonists in this series, the X-Men and the Eternals, with the Avengers trapped in the middle, are already written by Gillen. And that gave me a lot of faith that, you know what, this isn't necessarily going to feel tired or derivative because this is going to be the natural extension of Kieran Gillen's phenomenal storytelling. And then I read the free comic book day book and all of that faith has been shattered. The narration to this was a little less than I would have expected. Just what we've all kind of seen and thought that like, oh, they're going to say mutants are deviations and mutants need to be destroyed. And now the Eternals are going to try to destroy the X-Men. It did not feel fresh or exciting at all. It's what, maybe eight pages? The Cersei stuff. I'd love to kind of see some Cersei Avengers, like, you know, late 80s, early 90s kind of memories, but it's not doing it for me. Going to what we got in the third story, the Hellfire Gala preview. Man, the majority of this exposition laying down that mutants are going to be deviants and the Eternals need to destroy them, like, felt really heavy and, like, did we we need that twice. If you're releasing these in the same free comic book day book, did we need that twice? I mean, the art in these were great. I would say probably the most exciting thing is some of the battle stuff. Although all of the battle stuff that we're seeing in the preview from the Jerry Duggan and Matteo Loli side are ironically all Avengers versus X-Men things. And somehow in matchups or ways that we didn't get them, but should have maybe in Avengers versus X-Men from, you know, 10 years ago. But some of these matchups could be cool. We've talked 
about this before the Moira as just the super bad felt really unearned in that twist. You know, I would have much more preferred this to be a betrayal that turned her after all she's done for mutants than secretly she's been putting all of her bad eggs in one basket all along and that's what Krakoa really was. The idea of her murdering Mary Jane to wear her as skin like she did Banshee or something, this kind of mannequin robot Moira. These are some of my least favorite parts of what's going on in Destiny. And so big exciting end page, but I mean, these things are unfortunately not doing it for me. And it really makes me wonder who is this free comic book day book for? Because free comic book day books should be for the people who aren't already reading these. Free comic book day should be to get in and you get your chance. We make a big celebration and party out of it and we get casual and non-recurring readers. We get people who saw the movies and thought they were cool and are like, oh, hey, there's a thing and I can get some free swag if I go down to the shop. Like, this is your chance to give them the first hits free on us. And does any casual reader who has not been reading X-Men or Hoxpox, the person that you're getting the chance to put these pages in their hand and kidnap them and snatch them as a reader, do they have any idea what the fuck is going on in those last eight pages? Like, those feel like you have to a thousand percent be all in and having been reading X Lives and 10 Deaths and Inferno and all of these things. And you know, you don't have to sell me. Like, I'm buying this anyway. You don't have to sell me on this. I kind of question the presentation and what this is. I think, you know, maybe that Avengers X-Men art is a little cooler. I would also say that as someone who's not reading Kieran Gillen's Eternals, man, the introduction to the Eternals in this, in the acts, is really limited. And the fact that Druig looks so weird compared to the movie, like, if you're coming into this having seen the Eternals movie, and you're like, oh, there's gonna be a big crossover with Eternals. Again, like, what this is doing for for new casual reader, who you're trying to grab with this, I'm not sure. So I'm a little disappointed. I'm a little more nervous about Axe Judgment Day coming up. I really hope that we get some deeper thoughts than, you know, Eternals turning into Daleks and just, you know, going exterminate, kill, kill on mutants. The art is gorgeous. No complaints about anything Dustin Weaver and Matteo Lolli are doing on here. The art is phenomenal looking. At the very least, these will be friggin' beautiful to look at. That's my take on Free Comic Book Day. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now when this show began, it was all chrono skimming and we were doing just the past stuff and it's really exciting to get back to it. It really fills my heart with a warmth and while we can't put as much effort and time into it as we once did, it's really great to get to see it run several times a month, uh, probably about every other week, every week if we can, and it's going to be really great to see how our evolving voices and the new voices all interact on the material that defined our fandom and defined comics and continues to for generations of fans. It's such a pleasure to get to edit this show three times a week. MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and Chronos Gaming Classics and Premiere on Friday, which is a mix of looking at classic issues, major events, interviews with creators, and more. Don't forget, if you guys like what you hear, you can always check it out over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N for me personally. Or for the show, you can check it out over at X's for Podcast. If you want to find out a little bit more about my creator-owned work, you guys can check it out in the upcoming Young Men in Love collection 
collection, which I am so proud to be a part of with industry greats like Terry Bloss, Joe Glass, Anthony Oliveira, Cena Grace, and more. It's going to be amazing, and I hope you guys check it out and enjoy. And until next time, enjoy this chrono skimming classic. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Cohen gateways open. Judgment Day really is finally fucking coming. It's crazy. After all this time of saying it, it's finally here, right? I've been Nico. Enjoy this last segment, and we'll see ya. Now, speaking of people who know what they're doing, Marvel Special Editions know what they're doing. Because I'm sitting over here saying this isn't an arc. This isn't an arc. But somehow, the first two issues are the last two issues included in Uncanny X-Men Omnibus Volume Number 4. And then the other two-parter are the first two issues of New Mutants Omnibus Volume 2. And that's sort of logically where it would sit on the shelf together. So they've designed... a really clever product that reads really smoothly all together. And we're going to be taking a look then at the two-parter that kicks off the New Mutants Volume 2 Omnibus, New Mutants Special Edition, Home is Where the Heart Is, and X-Men Annual Number 9, There's No Place Like Home. For those who are unfamiliar, this is very firmly in the era where Chris Claremont is just sort of treating all his books as one big book and you just better buy everything, motherfucker. These are brought to you by Chris Claremont as the author, Arthur Adams as the illustrator, Terry Austin as embellisher, with Buhalis and Orzakowski on letters, Christy Scheel on colors. Man, this woman is on every fucking thing we read on this show. <laughs> Holy shit. I'm thrilled. And of course, Anne Nesenti as editor extraordinaire. And this is perhaps one of the longest yet still beloved issues in the history of X-Men. Really? Yeah. Oh, this two-parter okay. is universally loved, but rereading it from a modern light, there is so much sexualization of children in this and I am like, oh my god. These 80s legs are killing me. Just so much yeah, leg. Yeah, they're bad. So much leg. On children. On children. children. Well, and, you know, specifically, Arthur Adams is such a stylized guy. Now, Tori, you actually probably remember Art Adams as the guy who drew Longshot with Anne Nesenti? Oh, yeah. That fever dream. <laughs> and here, that's why he makes that appearance because, you know, you mm-hmm. play to the strengths of your your artist. You play to their better aspects. Now, I, of course, uh, was very positive on the art in the previous segment in X-Men Alpha Flight Parts 1 and 2, but, you know, there's really something about Art Adams and Terry Austin's just fucking psychotic Loki that is so good. This is like, by today's standards, a good, chilling Loki. And it brings the character to life in a way that perhaps didn't happen for me in the first two-parter. By no means an insult to the quality of the work that was produced, but it's another way in which I don't necessarily feel that this reads really well one big 200-page story. I definitely feel like it's one of those things where I'm watching like the second half feels like season two of a show where the where the characters are mostly the same, but everything's just like a little different. The writing staff is trying new things and they've got a bigger budget for some of this stuff. And so it's just bigger and crazier because they have to raise the stakes. 
I mean, like, obviously the name Asgardian Wars sounds really cool and you want to make it something that's marketable. What it really feels like is like Loki's big day out. Loki (laughs) does some mischief. Like, I don't I mean, like the first story, Loki just goes to the gods and is like, hey, let me do stuff. And then the gods are like, you sucked at doing stuff. End of story. This one, Loki's just like, I'm going to do some stuff. So really, the connective tissue is Loki does some stuff, not so much wars and Asgard. But it sounds really cool to say it. So here we are. I personally almost thought that the New Mutant Special Edition was actually better than the X-Men Annual because I think it was allowed to focus on a smaller cast of characters. I think maybe it was a little bit too long and in the page count, but I think that it really nailed the characters a lot more because there was a smaller cast. I tend to agree with that. And I also think that the stakes were higher for the New Mutants because this changes a lot of status quo for them. Some in ways like Karma that are offensive but the storyline that got her there was also problematic. So this is kind of a reset that both sucks and doesn't suck. But, you know, we're seeing big shifts for each of the characters in this that I think at this time were necessary to avoid stagnation. Whereas for the X-Men, they've had so much time to continue growing and developing and adding in new characters and characters dying and all that, that there's less of a need for the same type of thing for them. So their story is a little bit different. You know, when I think about this era for the New Mutants, it's an era that's marked by sort of confusion and change for these characters when we try to figure out where this should get slotted for the New Mutants proper we're looking somewhere around New Mutants 34 so Chris Claremont is more than halfway through his run I think this felt right with the New Mutants issue that Magneto is introduced as a headmaster because it is the first skinny Shan after the Shadow King so I believe it falls in New Mutants 35 so this is before Secret Wars because they died right after this and they had the whole Hellion arc. So this was like a really weird but pivotal time in the original New Mutants run. And I think I'm also really confused by why it's so many characters. Something that New Mutants was always really good about doing was kind of like passing off a few characters here and there, you know, sending them to Fallen Angels or working with a smaller crew. But here I do sort of feel overwhelmed by the number of characters and then we also get Storm and then we also get Tyr and then we also still have Loki and then we also get Hela and then we also have Enchantress it's just a lot to sort of manage and don't get me wrong it is like 273 pages but I find myself a little unsure if this nearly trade sized issue really warrants the page count because it's got so many sectioned elements. It's just this one character. Then it's just this one character. This did a pivotal shift in both Danny Moonstar's and Karma's characters. For the New Mutant Special Edition, this is pivotal when you can factor in the story as a whole. I just don't know enough about how trades are put together. I just figured that they would kind of, you know, pick 250 pages and that were published around the same time and then pop it in a book together. Normally you try to keep it intra-series. You try to keep it to the one title or a directly connected arc where you can follow a specific character. Not that I don't think Loki is a followable as you know TK pointed out it's Loki's big day of mischief but in some ways this is very reminiscent of when Doctor Doom was like 
Ah, yes, Storm, be my bride. And she was kind of like, um, no. And he was like, damn it, then be a statue. <laughs> and she was like, aww. Right? Like, it's sort of got elements of that. People constantly sort of fetishize Storm into their own personal goddess. And Depeche mm. Mode starts playing in the background. Oh, and <laughs> I think that because of that, I almost wish we could separate out some of the Asgard from what's going on with the New Mutants like the storm stuff is just specifically a thread too much for me in this read. I think you could cut Sam, Bobby and Amara. They just weren't there that day and pretty safely continue the plot development that's really necessary for definitely Danny, definitely Karma, although really we should have completely rewritten the Karma one, but whatever. You're also seeing important, not like new developments for Ilyana and Doug and Warlock, but you're seeing developments that are really important to continue on for those characters more hints of the corruption in Ilyana's soul and what that's doing to her and what the dark child is and then also how important it is that Doug and Warlock have a sort of symbiosis and can function as a unit when it comes to being on the team I think these are all the characters that we see the best work for in this issue but we do get really standalone plot lines that take up page time for Sam Bobby and Amara, all of which are not really important to anything about those characters, not really important to this story. And then they bleed into the next one and continue to not be super important. This probably would have been a good time to leave them behind. I think Storm is integral to it because I think you have to get after issue 34 of New Mutants where Storm is basically set up as the charge of the New Mutants after the second Shadow King epic, the fatphobic karma issue. You know, I think you really have to move the story in some way. So I think Storm's part is necessary. Obviously, Shan's journey is editorially mandated because, you know, and, and I'm glad it was over and I'm glad we got rid of the fat phobia. And Danny Moonstar's arc is very important to the character. Rain set up a arc that was important to her several times throughout her life. But I don't think the immediate issues really affected her as much as, say, Shan and Danny. Tori, you know, I know that your relationship with the New Mutants is, you know, from a distance. Bette Midler says hi. And I, oh, hey, bet. And there's still so much to be said about a modern interpretation of the way these women are written. You know, we're talking about stories that were written just before you were born and the way women were depicted and how that was the world you came up in, that these were these stories that were available to you and what you would have read as a comic reader at that point in time. Now, looking back on it, you know, you've seen where comics have come to and you know the stark difference in these interpretations. And yet we still see the suffering of female characters under the weight of nearly oppressive sexuality designed by men. You know, I don't think Cannonball in the Briefs is played up the same way Ileana in a bathing suit is. And I would just love to get your take on the way these women are depicted in terms of this being 1985 and them being children. I just, I am the more that I read older comics, the more it becomes very clear to me that the characters are more than their writers and they are being kind of like shoved around by writers uh, and artists who don't necessarily understand what it means to be female, to be under 16. I think in their heads, they think that if you leave home, you have to become an adult and have adult ideas and 
and it's not. It is traumatic to leave home. It creates a false, like, eternal childhood. Like, there there should be, like, emotional stunting that is not just about creating drama, creating tension, creating conflict. Like, there should be actual, like, inability to have adult relationships, to have friendships, to be able to, like, fully interact with the world and to have these children just parading around like they're 20 years old or just out of college like it's one of those things where when I was like 9 or 10 I would read the babysitter club books and those girls are 12 or 13 and they are like dating like they don't call one of the girls a slut but she dates high schoolers like juniors and seniors and is known to be boy crazy and making out and all this stuff and like so like this is the the idea that a 13 year old girl would do those things this is just like what I grew up in the idea that like you're going to become a teenager and all of a sudden it's going to be like you're a miniature adult and like that's why so many girls particularly girls of color get like sexualized really early get groomed really early to think that like oh these like boys my age are so stupid they don't see what's in front of them but this older guy is like this like it's just it's all of that and it's just really tough for me to see like when the men get stripped of their powerful positions it's by like dumping food on them or like at strapping a collar on them but the girls who get their like who get disempowered from from their true selves are like getting molested by a, a wolf prince who you very much feel is obviously older and knows what he's up to to uh having iliana having these very obviously like manly gnarly arms come out of the wall and grip her until she can't move and becomes powerless and unable to help herself from these arms around her around a child and and it's done in a very sexy kind of hot manner and it just oh it makes me sad because when i was younger i thought that that was like what it should be that's what's that what was cool that's what was awesome that was like mm, like interesting and sexy and everything that you want to be and now i look at it and i'm just like god this is just sad it's just sad so anyway that's my downer i don't think it's a downer i think it's a necessary element of looking back on these stories it's you know things i only saw pieces of and had glimpses of and hearing it put in clear language really helps me better understand how so much of this really is designed around the male perspective even the parts that feature incredibly strong storm incredibly strong madeline you know there still is an element of submitting the loki in either one of them that i would never expect from xavier or from magneto and you know even though we did see xavier very no i'm under your thrall in the previous arc, you know, Wolverine was still very, don't worry about it, kid. You can't put me under thralls because my brains are scrambling or something. I'm no so, longer partially an animal. Was Wolverine ever partially an animal? I don't understand. Well, no, no. He's like, like, I'm a fucking animal. Oh, fuck you up. I'm a fucking animal. Don't mess with me. You get out of that parking spot and you leave it. For, you cannot hold a parking spot. I will fuck you up. I'm an animal. But then he's like, trying to say that that, like Beastmaster had control over his beastliness. 
it's you know at least this is it's just way before Romulus so but I do love that he resolves the whole thing by going guess I'm crazy again <laughs> like and that's just I, mm, I don't want to go backwards I don't want to go backwards <laughs> let's move on yep yeah. now I think that this story is visually one of the most significant moments for the new mutants you know we get Brightwind and Danny in their incredible Valkyrie greatness you know no offense Brightwind you're no Mr. Horse but I think that who is you know I'm so enamored of the fact that Chris Claremont said in order for them to stay the new mutants they have to keep updating so shortly after the team was formed he dramatically changed the team then he gave them enemies you know rivals rivals is the better term then he gave yeah in the Hellions which will be our next chrono skimming adventure we'll be looking at that era of 1984 super exciting then Sienkiewicz came on and said everything you think you fucking know about what kids look like you sound dumb stop thinking about it because this is what kids look like it was a real brilliant fuck you in the face. And I think he's trying to continue to reinvent these kids as best he can through these annuals or, you know, these giant megalith issues. Yeah. And I think it works in a lot of cases. I'm The example that I really look to and love is Doug and Warlock. Oh, I very much agree. What's up with Doug and Warlock? They are soulmates. No kidding. And uh, they kind of share a body sometimes, and sometimes they accidentally die and become one person involving shat- the uh, ashes wait, on a is this- Doug Lack. Doug Lack, is, really. is this the first time that they, because I, I saw him be all like, I'll, you can be on my body because you're not doing so hot there, buddy. Like, is this the first time they did that? I want to you know, say yeah. I'd have to look it I up. I think so. But it's, it's That's an early big. one for sure. That's big. Yeah. The flip side of it where he can use Warlock as a mech is is yeah. also really important because Doug constantly laments that. And it's a funny thing because it seems like one of the things New Mutants really wants to establish early on is that there are mutants that don't have fight powers, but they can be useful on a team, but they're never able to write things consistently such that you would ever plausibly believe that Doug could stay on the team and not be more of a liability than he was an asset. And so this pairing with Warlock as his mech suit is on the one hand kind of cool and also kind of an admission of defeat. Yeah, because like to me, Cypher, Cypher should be someone who stays at home or maybe flies the plane and the plane has guns. Like that's that's what you do when you're not the super crazy power ones. And something that Nico and I have talked about is the idea that Doug over time would be somebody that would learn like body language and therefore become an incredible athlete he would learn like the deeper language of the universe and be able to do a lot more it's something that if you're going to abandon the idea that people with low level powers can be an asset on a superhero team then you then you have to take people to new and interesting levels and they flirt with it a lot for doug especially but i don't think they ever get to a place that he as a beloved character with a really long history has kind of earned at this point Hmm. of course in the modern era it is such a completely different world because, you know, Doug and Warlock are the voice of Krakoa and oh, yeah. they exist like outside the council and, you know, their role as like the, I, I don't know, the undisputed sheriffs of Krakoa. It, <laughs> it's so strange. But here, they're just scared boys. And yeah. I think in a lot of ways, Cypher does kind of exist outside of the regular interpretation of male characters. He gets that gay one 
Bond a lot, even though he's not gay, but he does get very the femboy mm. kind of treatment. And I think I am used to seeing Sam, even though he's like the gawky skinny one, I'm used to him being a little bit more commanding than he is yeah. here. But man, Birdo's a fucking that because he's Birdo here, but Beto, you know, Beto is a fucking motherfucker. I love him. I just love him so much. I just love him so much. And he's such a dick. And he's so he loves that he's thick. You know what I mean? He loves oh, that he he's does. a scrapper and he loves that he can take a punch and it leads him to being dumber than he should. And that plays into a story like this, this hyper exaggerated fairy tale. I do hate though how a lot of his journey in this story is just him having women draped all over him and just being oh, like, what? Yeah. I'm hot. I mean, I love that about him at times because it's funny, but especially considering the points that Tori pointed out about what goes on with the women, it does sort of feel like when a girl does it, she's a slut. When a guy does it, he's a stud. And Beto being kind of the embomination or the embodiment of that. I like the embomination. Like uh, it's a little uh, bit embodiment. Sir, I said embomination as though he had all of his fluids removed. Oh, the abomination. <laughs> The abomination is definitely a section of the necropolis from that issue of Sandman. So 1000%. And now, okay, Storm's role here is unusually passive for her. I think this would not go in an all-time great Storm story for Storm's behavior the way it would for Storm's iconography. I think that cover sustains us, but I wonder how active a role Storm really played in in this story. I feel like she just sort of stood by and got talked at. Yeah, Storm was definitely oddly served by this art. Like, she got one of her most iconic look, but she is definitely a chess piece in the story rather than an active player, which is very strange for a Chris Claremont story because with Chris Claremont, she's always been the most powerful, the most strong-willed. Like, she was the one who, even as a baseline human at the time, being depowered, was powerful-willed enough to lead the X-Men. You know what this reminds me of? There's an episode of Power Rangers where they take the pink Power Ranger and they like stick her in Rita Repulsa gear. Oh, I mean, I already agree with you. You're referencing MMPR, so it's automatically right. Right. So like, and it's, I mean, it was very formative for me, but it's, it's one of those things where it's just like, you dress her up, you make her a little bit evil. It's the same thing that like when they make, you know, a little Sailor Chibi Moon into her adult version and she's evil because she just like got stuck on the wrong side of a mirror or like whatever that was and hitting on her dad and hitting, and on, her hitting dad. on her dad and it's fine because later she fucks a horse it's fine <laughs> it's that trope that like i was very used to this is the gold bikini without the strangling for a very long time and i mean it's amazing to look at it's amazing to like be like she's got the fucking hammer afterwards you're like yeah but like it wasn't storm and so like i really hope that after this she gets to actually like wield a hammer and look this cool and be herself while doing it but yeah it's exactly what nathan was saying it's it's beautiful to look at and it's exciting to think about but you're just like it's not it's not storm underneath it it's a weird thing because as nathan mentioned and as i think long-term claremont readers all recognize storm is claremont's favorite she yeah. gets story beats that nobody else gets she is featured the most despite a lot of bad problematic writing for the character that wouldn't be acceptable now she is one of his best written characters and so when you get a story like this where she's not that it's kind of like well you know it had to happen eventually and 
And if the takeaway from it is this really cool moment that links her weather goddess status with sort of an actual reference to weather goddess, like mythological hood, it's there's something about it is it works for me. If she was just so poorly treated throughout the run and then on top of that, this moment happened and it was just like, we're just supposed to accept the takeaway, I might really hate it. But knowing the love that Claremont had for Storm overall and the fact that this story is kind of just generally weird there's too many characters there's too much stuff happening and so the storm beats for this one might have fell by the wayside but she gets the best takeaway from it uh you know you take the good with the bad i do think it's really interesting that storm is depowered here and yet weather still plays a huge part in both of these stories it's one of those things where i also think for all we talk about how chris claremont was a master writer of challenging his characters and you know he never let it stop him from putting together a plot he liked. If he wanted Weather to be an antagonist, whether Storm's got her powers or not, sure, Shaman, uh, or, you know, Talisman, sure, Snowbird, sure, anybody. Anybody can do Weather stuff. Loki, psh, why not? Loki could do Weather stuff. It's not something that ever holds him back. And I think that's one of the ways in which Chris Claremont is able to create really consistent comics. After he loses Dazzler, he has Jubilee, and I don't mean that in a reductive way. I mean that in like he likes to think about how to create a visually dynamic panel. He knows lights do that. He knows lightning does that. And he thinks about how that translates across multiple characters in a way that I think is really important. So ultimately, Loki sees defeat again. And I find this one maybe equally perhaps unsatisfactory as the first one. But I don't know. I think one of the things you wind up with when you're dealing with a god like Loki is it's hard to believably beat him all the time without sort of, you know, having Squirrel Girl beat Doctor Doom. It creates an inequity for the characters that can be really difficult to work with. How do you guys ultimately feel about this sort of four-part portrayal of Loki as some sort of dark Ferris Bueller? I think this arc to me as being one that I read so strongly as a new comic reader is why I never really took Loki as a serious threat because in this four-issue arc, he's almost like Arcade, like where like, you know, like he could be really terrifying if he actually tried yeah he is like arcade in an alligator purse uh. i completely agree I don't know if I saw these as Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I saw the first two issues as being very much a problem of Loki's hubris that he constantly is up against, where he is his own worst enemy, that he, if he had just, like, let it ride, he would have won, and he just fucks it all up on his own when he decides to be like, no, 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 it is I who am the savior. It is I. And then for the second one, it's just some creepy stalker shit and deciding that he wanted to to play the loophole on how to get back at the x-men like i don't i don't know if this is a caper i think this is a really creepy weird you know non-consensual side of loki and i think it includes just the idea that loki knows better than anyone else how you should be living your lives and he's just gonna make it happen and that there is no will there is no self there is no imagination creativity individuality when it comes to 
stand, when Loki wants something, he's just going to erase all of that and put himself in its stead. And I think that speaks volumes to his character, but I don't think that it's like just like some like hokey, like, ho, ho, ho. Like when Wolverine keeps calling this a caper, I'm like, why are you calling this a caper? Like your friends are in danger. Well, and it definitely doesn't feel like a battle of good versus evil, superheroes versus gods. I think with this many pages in a story that was superheroes versus gods, you could have a believable and satisfying series of battles that led to the superheroes overcoming the gods in a way that you could set up as plausible. The big thing with this story is it's a lot about the mystery of what's going on, solving that and figuring it out, doing these character beats that are going to move people forward. There's a lot of little moments and small plots that don't leave a lot of room to have everybody together trying to figure out how to defeat a god and so by the time you get to a point where that is actually going to need to happen to resolve the story there isn't really a good way to resolve it but the takeaways that we've gotten in terms of the character development are enough to make it enjoyable even if the conclusion of protagonist versus antagonist really doesn't do much of anything i agree with all of this and you know we're sort of at the end of this forged trade and one of the things I'm most grateful for is being able to recognize what doesn't work for me in this read you know this was always a story that I held in high regard and I gave it you know growing up I gave it like an A and I think in retrospect I'm a little bit more inclined to give it a realistic B but if I throw those rose colored glasses on i could give it a rose colored a minus for sure i could probably give it a critical c plus but like that's sort of the the nature of grading things you know there is no one right grade for everything there's sort of a scale of grades and i think as guardian wars is a really great way to reintegrate me into the world of reading classic claremont x-men stories because it allows me to remember that there's a lot of ways to grade a comic and there's a lot of ways to see great while still recognizing the things that need to be discussed. So if I were to look in teenage Nathan getting into comics like Brain, X-Men Alpha Flight was one of the first complete miniseries that I was able to get my hands on and I absolutely loved it. Um, I got the second part of the X-Men annual of Asgardian Wars and it took me the longest time to get the New Mutant Special the New Mutant Special Edition but eventually I got it. So that Nathan really loved this arc and would have given it like A++++++ looking at it now reading it from a very modern perspective there is a lot of overarching very problematic writing in it that is some of the time and is some of claremont's strengths and weaknesses like he has some really great character beats in this arc but there's some very very of the time uh not as problematic then but very problematic now writing in it i would say current nathan would have to give this a c with the caveat that i don't i like I, the art is like just fucking stunning I need to just point out, I completely had the same experience with trying to track down a new Mutant Special Edition for my amazing inherited comic collection where my dad had all the books. There was like a handful of missing motherfuckers. Oh, that was one one of them was New Mutant Special Edition. And it it took me quite a while to find a copy in the early days of eBay. And I very much remember the same experience. Yeah. So for me, I think it's mostly a B minus. The art is just 
an all-out A. Problematic stuff aside. But there's a lot that just doesn't work for me. The really big strength is the thing that Nico said, which is that this really is something we talked about at the start. This is a great read for looking back at right in the square of the 80s, mid-80s X-Men, New Mutants, and seeing the status quo for all these characters and getting elements that remain integral to the characters today that are part of their histories that are still referenced, despite the fact that we don't talk about Madeline being anodyne. That one's okay. There's a lot of other stuff here that does get referenced. This is a really good read for anybody who is more ensconced in modern X-Men and has ever been curious about what came before but didn't necessarily want to read dozens of issues on either side. You really can get some solid takeaways about how writers thought about these characters back in the day and that will inform how you read stuff now. Because that's knowledge I already have, this isn't as exciting to me, but it is exciting, as Nico mentioned, as kind of a jumping off point for for going back and looking at other X stories where my knowledge might not be as robust. Yeah, I would say that I can't grade this because I don't have enough of the historical knowledge to to really go for it. So for me, it's really just about like, do I understand what's going on? Are the themes working? Is the art nice? You know, is it a is it a story that, you know, has a beginning, middle and end? And it hits all of the major ones. It's a fun rock you get a good solid feel for each character which is very nice and honestly I uh, will admit that I thought I was stepping into four 22 page issues and I was not prepared for 270 something so I was pleased to know that this was longer and therefore more thought out but I don't know if this is one that I would I think this is one that I would recommend to people who are like what was up with this the X-Men in the 80s I don't know if I would recommend this to someone who's like what's up with the X-Men does that make sense oh yeah and you know that's really part of why I'm like Tori we need you here because even if you're like no I lack the experiential X-Men sort of development what you do possess is than the experience of somebody who the marketing is succeeding on. And this is a trade that's pretty much always in print. If you're interacting with the media that you've never interacted as a result of the cultural rise of these stories, you know, our ability to produce this podcast as a result of the increased success of, you know, the movies, the comics, your your opinion, your perspective, it's completely valid and it reflects a lot of our listeners who are new to this you know you might not think everybody new to comics gets into a show via you know a hardcore x-men come on every every book ever kind of podcast but mm. a lot of people do and it's part of why we're returning to that era in our chrono skimming coverage because people do want it this collection of four issues for all of its problems for the readers of its time is so well beloved i would suggest readers of the time don't go back and reread it because you're going to view you this beloved classic as something totally different when you look at it in a modern life. 